another perspective again on a different use of the Psalms. So you recall the first week we had a, you know, a, a Psalm was chanted and then, you know, we, we had some worship from the Psalms and then last week the, the worship was specifically from the Psalms and then Marty and I sang one of them at the end. Um, so what we're going to do, um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start and I'm just going to give like another couple of minutes or so to make sure everybody gets in because I, I really um, would like us all to, uh, to be able to participate in that. We're going to do something called a Lectio Divina. Does anybody know what that is or has anybody ever heard of it? You have? Okay. It's Latin for uh, divine word. And what it is, is it's a spiritual exercise where you listen to a scripture, primarily listen, that's the way we're going to do it, and you don't read it, you just really put yourself in a position to do nothing but to listen to the words and focus on, on the words of, uh, in this case, the psalm that I'm going to read. And uh, the purpose is to just set yourself quietly before God and see if in that reading, the reading that I'm going to do, there is a word, a phrase, a picture, we'll step our way through it, that, that you get. And the reason I wanted to expose you to it is this type of, you can do it on your own too, it's not as good as when somebody reads it, because then you can just close your eyes and do nothing but listen. But this type of meditative reading of very short scriptures can, can be really helpful. And I think it's particularly applicable when you think about, you know, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, what the Psalms are and what they represent. So we're going we're gonna to be doing that. We'll start in a couple of minutes. Um, and actually, we're probably, I think, judging, we're probably mostly all here. Uh, let's give it like another minute or so. Does anybody have any questions who's been here about anything that we've talked about in the last, um, last few weeks? Anyone? No questions at all? Any thoughts? Anything that has struck you so far in the last two weeks in, in examining the Psalms? How many of you, and you don't have to like look around or anything, but how many of you had, had really had much experience looking at the Psalms before you took the class? No? Have, yes. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Good. So that, that accomplishes one purpose, which was to, as I said at the outset, to kind of expose you not only to the, the Older Testament, but to, you know, one of the books there. And I was well, talking... Hmm? Um, I'll comment. Yes. Um, I found that um, I never really found much meaning in the Psalms. I mean, I knew it was a phrase, and I understood it for that. But in the context of what we've been learning, it's been good to put it in perspective as far as understanding it's more of a song or a meditation, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So. Good. Great. Excellent. And you know, it, even, even this week, I've actually had that experience because I, I was at a gathering on Monday and we, and we opened with a, an extended time of prayer and just in, in sort of just thinking and reflecting and just kind of waiting to hear from God, um, I, was, I was kind of pointed to a psalm. And so I just read it out in the course of our time of worship there. And um, then had some time later in the day during a break and, uh, and went back and examined it. And so actually the intro on the next section of, of 
this particular Psalm 32 that we're going to look at is taken directly out of that, that sort of meditation reflection that I just got on Monday. And it, it gave me a little different perspective in where to go, uh, go tonight with the study. So um, that's, that just goes to show you right there that, that literally in a given moment you can, you can be inspired by the Psalms and, and take things. And you'll see how, how we tie it all together. Do we need more chairs? Are we okay? Or you just like to sit in the back? There's some over here. Don't be bashful. Okay. All right. Well, when we come, we like to, we generally like to open with worship for a couple of reasons. We, we want to recognize that this is a time when we're looking to come into God's presence. So worship is traditionally one of the ways that pulls us out of work, family, you know, whatever stuff is out there on the other side of the door that we can't help but bring in with us. And what we really are trying to do to just focus ourselves on what God wants to show us, teach us, uh, you know, put in our hearts or our minds over the course of the time we spend together. So this exercise that we're going to do has the same intention. If it feels a little bit strange to you, don't worry, just kind of go with it. It'll It'll, it'll get better as you go along. It's a little strange at first. And I think part of that is because in our culture, we don't place much of a value on silence. We don't. You know, other cultures do, but in our culture, we, we don't really place much of a value on silence. And from your perspective, this exercise requires you to be silent. And, and as we go through, this, this doesn't just involve you know, closing your lips and not speaking. It involves sort of just stopping your mind from churning, from, you know, some thought that came in here. Maybe you're still thinking about something that happened at work today. And so they thought, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, bless you, brother. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just close your eyes and sit as relaxed as you possibly can. We don't have lounge chairs or recliners, so we can't do that. But, and I'm going to do this reading, and what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to read it through once, and I'll pause for a moment to let you just reflect. Then I'm going to read it through a second time. I'm going to ask you on the second time, and I'll prompt you again, but I'm going to ask you to see if there's just a word, perhaps, that in the midst of listening really came to your mind. We'll go through a third time, and then I'll, I'll come back and ask you if you saw perhaps a picture or there was a particular phrase that really struck you. And then when we're done, we'll just take a little bit of time to, uh, to share what, perhaps what word, what phrase, um, what, what sort of picture God gave us through, uh, through the Scripture. If, you know, you don't get that, don't, I mean, don't feel bad, but, I mean, the idea is just to stop and, and, and just reflect, okay? So just take your time relaxing, let all your body parts just sort of melt into that chair. You know, if you need to move your head and your neck to just let some air out of your lungs, just to slow yourself down and relax. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony 
For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, ran down his beard, and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing upon us. You shall have life everlasting. Just focus on listening and see if there is a, perhaps a word that particularly stands out to you now as I read through again. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing upon us. You shall have life everlasting. Okay, now perhaps in listening, the Lord will bring that word back, perhaps expand upon it or turn it into a phrase or use it to give you a picture. Just use your ears to listen and see what, what the Lord may show you. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, ran down his beard, and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing upon us you shall have life everlasting.
Lord, thank you for this time tonight that we can be gathered in your name. I just pray that um, the words that go forth, the thoughts that pass through our heads and our hearts, the feelings that um, they would be guided and directed by you. We are thankful and grateful, Lord, to be able to come so freely assemble in your name. We give glory to you this evening. Amen. So anyone, did you see anything, hear anything, get a word, did a phrase particularly catch you in the midst of this? Harmony and refreshing. I think it was harmony is as refreshing. Harmony is refreshing. Uh-huh. Great. There's a lot of disharmony in our world, isn't there? Yeah. Road rage. Yeah. What else? Yes. Yeah, it takes something to live in harmony, to live in unity with others. There's a price to be paid to, uh, to accomplish that. Someone else? think that most of us think that in order to live quote harmoniously we have to totally subject ourselves you think that's what people believe these days yeah and really the psalmist here is talking about a different kind of harmony someone else anyone else yes Mm-hmm. Great. Great, yeah. And these days, after, after Jesus' life, we, we know that part of this lubrication that is talked about, this oil really represents to us today the Holy Spirit, and that God-given harmony smooths over a lot of the joints, helps things to fit together and, and work together. That's kind of the image that's, uh, that's there. Someone else, good. Yes? Yeah, it looks like they're uh, being together like a 
Mm -hmm. Great. Excellent. We're going to talk about that too here. Excellent. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Anyone else? The what, I'm sorry? Uh-huh. Okay. Good. Yeah. A great promise. It's hard to capture that sometimes when we're living day to day, but it is actually out there. So um, how did you like that? Did you, was it different for, for those of you who have never experienced it before? It's something that you can easily do on your own, you know, just, um, just very quietly read a scripture to yourself. Out loud sometimes helps, I think, because then you, you're, you're sort of forcing your mind to stop and read the words, and then as you're reading, uh, there, there's something about that. So that's called Lectio Divina. Um, we use it in a, a number of different contexts, and... Um, sometimes can be really helpful. Um, as I mentioned to you, in preparing for this week, I was led to this psalm. This is Psalm 133, by the way, that I was reading. And um, from there, I remembered a, uh, a book that, um, not necessarily everybody's favorite, but it's certainly one of mine. It's by a, a gentleman called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German who lived around the time of the Nazi regime. And the book is called Life Together. And in the first chapter of the book, which is entitled, the chapter is entitled Community, this is the scripture that, uh, that he opens with. And the book and the chapter really explores um, different aspects of how God intends for us to live together as his family. That's the key. That's the key. And in all the things that we've been talking about the last two weeks, one of the critical issues here is that the kind of harmony that this psalm is talking about all comes out of being a harmonious family, harmoniously living in the family of God. And that's what the, uh, that's, that's what the psalm is, uh, is looking at. Um, Now you may be wondering why within the context of Psalm 32 we're looking at, um, we're, we're talking about community, partly because I got, you know, sent there. There we go. All right. Through, through reading this psalm. But there actually is an application to Psalm 32. And the first is that community puts us in fellowship, in closer contact with one another. Now, for some of us, if we come into the church, into the family of God, it may be for a while that that's all the community we want. We just kind of want to know some people and, you know, be part of stuff. But, you know, any other deeper aspects of community are a bit much. Perhaps we've been wounded. Perhaps we're scared, you know. But it is an important aspect of community, fellowship. Okay? Fellowship is a, is a big one. Now, through these relationships, community gives us access to the wisdom and experience of others. 
So in the last, last week we talked about, didn't we, the David's experiences as recounted in Psalm 32. Now who were these experiences being related to? Just any old person? Well, if you remember when we talked about the use of the Psalms, they were primarily used at that time. They probably, they probably weren't written for a long time, so it was an oral tradition. So the Psalms were sung or recited or chanted, and they were part of the worship service or the worship life of the, of the church at that time. And so the only way you had real access to this kind of wisdom and reflection on God's character was to be part of the community. And so that's one of the things that community does is it gives us access to wisdom and experience. So now that we are part of the community of the church today, we have fortunately the Bible and in the Bible Psalm 32. So as part of this community, we get a chance to avail ourselves of David's wisdom and experience. So all of this comes through community. The likelihood of somebody just off the street knowing much about, you know, King David, unless they're, a, you know, an Old Testament scholar or something and detached, but I mean, how many people are going to know about David and all of his stuff and maybe be more intimately acquainted with something like Psalm 32? So it's connected to community. Okay? Questions on that? See how the tie-in is there? Now this is one that uh, sometimes we struggle with. God doesn't just give us wisdom to give us a nice good spiritual meal. Okay? The wisdom and experience of others is intended to impact our lives. And so the, next, the other thing that happens through community is we can, we can have accountability relationships. Now if you recall in last week when we went through the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12, it was pretty obvious that David wasn't really accountable to anyone. He pretty much did what he wanted and nobody was going to stand up to him and say, do you think you really ought to do that? And we're talking at numbers of steps if you recall the story, right? Not only did he do it and go send for her, nobody said, hey, you know, she's married, maybe you should just back off on that. Okay, then, then the whole thing happens and then he says, well, let's go get Uriah and bring him down, you know, I don't think you want to go there and then well let's put Uriah out so he gets killed you know King that's really going over the line here just to cover your tracks no at no point was there accountability despite the fact that he was in community and he was the king so it wasn't going to be with the average person but still there wasn't any accountability so I raise that point because accountability choosing to have accountability in community is optional you can decide not to have it and I know from experience, and you remember that the testimony I told you last week, I chose not to have accountability despite the fact that I was loosely connected to the church, and I paid the price for that. Okay? So accountability relationships um, are important, and I think David's example in 2 Samuel 12, and we see reflected in Psalm 32, also reminds us it's not enough to say that we're accountable to God. Because who holds us to that? I mean, here physically on earth, who can, you know, who's watching our actions, okay? Oh, I don't go to church, but I'm a spiritual person. Or, yeah, I go to church, but I don't belong to a group, or I'm not part of this kind of stuff, because, you know, I'm, I, I got my relationship with God. I'm accountable to God. 
Okay. And, you know, the example, again, of King David shows you accountability, saying you're just accountable to God. You know, there's not really any checks and balances on that. I mean, in theory, it could work, but in practical terms, being the, the human beings that we are, it, it really doesn't. You know, we just have to say straight up, it, do, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really work. So community also leads to accountability. Okay. And think about this. Let's say you just use Psalm 32 as a bit of a corrective. Well, if you had an accountability relationship, you could point to that, and maybe knowing the backstory, you could say, look, you know, here's an example. You don't want to go there. Or, you know, if you're being stubborn about, you know, just sort of shying away from God and pushing God away because there's some perhaps unconfessed sin like we talked about, there's a perfect example right there that someone can use. Okay, and I think very importantly too, and we see this in just what Psalm 32 was, community is one of the most important God-given outlets for our spiritual gifts and our talents and our skills. So David was a very talented person. And so one of the outlets for him was to write songs and to praise God and to edify or lift up others through the, the music that he wrote and the words that he wrote. And so that's the other thing that happens in community. Now, if I didn't have the community of the church, would I teach? You know, I'd probably find some outlet for that, but the, the, you know, the fact is that this is, this is far and away my, my biggest outlet for loving to teach. And I saw this in my dad's life. My dad, as it turned out, uh, was had a real teaching gift when and he grew up very poor you know and and you know through life and anyway he was an alcoholic that eventually recovered and when he went to to AA he worked sort of worked his way up and became started to become known and so unbeknownst to all of us in the family people recognized my dad as a tremendous speaker very motivational really able to connect with people and once he got sober he began to have sort of a, a second career, if you will, and he'd be invited to conventions all over the state, different parts of the country, to go and speak. So there was an outlet, a healthy outlet for this, this gifting that he had that he never knew about. And a lot of that happens within the context of the church for many of us. Gifts of mercy, we like to help, we like to just care for others, um, we teach, we, we, uh, we like hospitality, like Chris there. Okay, these find tremendous outlets within the church in a way that, it, that really builds us and others up. So that's, that's kind of the idea. Questions on that in terms of why community is important, why we look at it in that context? Okay. Now last week um, in verses 1 through 6, we got some nuggets of wisdom from David. And if you recall the line and, and uh, you know, Heard from somebody here that they actually went home and uh, watched the Magnificent Seven last week. And so we, we found out how did David know. And what we found out last week was that David's wisdom that we see at the opening part of Psalm 32 was based on some real experience. It wasn't something David made up or just thought might sound good to people, you know, hear the song, but it was real. And so that's one of the things that we... Uh, we found out uh, we found out last week. Um, okay. 
I think I have the right slide here. Let me see. Oh, no. Bear with me here. I lost my place on the slides. Okay, here we go. Now, let's read verse 7. And uh, you all have Bibles. We're in Psalm 32. Or for easier reading, I have the, the handout that's on page 7. And we'll start with, um, with verse 7 there, Psalm 32. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, in verse 7, the first thing we see is David speaking out of a place where he's been restored. And you recall, um, last week we talked about this. Here's the process again, just to, just to remind you what David went through. First, there was some sin. In this case, it was the sin you know, of adultery with Bathsheba. And actually, the sin of murder, sending her husband to be killed. Then, eventually, and this was definitely, as we saw last week, eventually, in David's part, there was repentance for the sin. That was turning away from what he did and turning back to God. This is the second step of the, as we called it, the transaction. God accepted that act of repentance on the part of David and forgave his sin. And you recall that the thing we talked about being forgiven means, particularly to us now, is that the penalty for that trans transgression or sin has been canceled. And in our case, that's because it's gone to Jesus' account. So we don't have to pay the penalty, even though we did sin. We may have to pay the consequences. And recall, last week we talked about the differences between the penalty for sin and the consequences. Well, David had to live with the consequences. And, and in the, the testimony I showed you last week, I told you about, I had to live with the consequences. But I was forgiven, and the, the price that I would have had to pay was, uh, was canceled. And the fourth was, and this was the one we talked about, is so difficult for us to get our, our heads around as human beings, is not only did the penalty get canceled, but our account is wiped clean. And we talked about the accounting thing where if you take it from one place, you've got to put it somewhere else, remember? So it goes off our account onto Jesus' account. And we talked about the difficulty that we all have getting our mind around the idea that after we confess our sins and are forgiven, our slate is wiped clean. That just, it's hard to, you know, I, I bring it up again because it's hard to get our minds around that, isn't it? How many of us are even capable of wiping the slate clean with people we forgive? I mean, completely. Now, a lot of times stays in the back of our mind, doesn't it? I forgive you, but, you know, I'm going to be watching out for you. Because, you know, I, I'm going to be watching out for you. And it's like gone as far as the east is from the west. We're separated from, the, from that and all the impacts, okay? So this is the place that David is coming out of when, when you know, and we saw that, in the, in the middle part of the psalm there, and what is coming now to verse 7. Okay? Questions on the, on the transaction? We're good with it? Okay. Well, if you really try with all your might to forgive people of harm during your past, and yet, like you said, it's in the back of your head, and it's 
business and I'm pressing. How do you get to be where you want to be? I, you know, I, I, I don't know that I have an absolute answer for that. I think there is a process, um, and, and God is part of that process. Because I've had in my life, too, I mean, many of us can probably reflect on really deep hurts that we've had, mm -hmm. and it's hard to get over that. Even though there is forgiveness, even maybe there's a restoration, there's still a little bit of reluctance. There's something in the back of our mind, and... And, and I truly believe that only God over time can, can eventually purge us of that and make us completely and totally free. But the process is different for everyone. Okay. I wouldn't even pretend to tell you that I know how that goes. Yes? Correct. Well, I wouldn't say that. No. <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I would say, in fact, that, you know, if you look at it, and we were actually going to talk about this. Um, let, me, let me go there, since we, uh, we went in that direction. I'm going to read some... Yeah, yeah. Now, different, different traditions come down um, more directly on this issue, but I'm going to read to you, and if you, want to put, if you want to put the notation, and we were actually going to go to this, an earlier part of this. This is a, a Matthew chapter 6, um, verses 9 through 13. And Matthew 6, 9 through 13 is, is what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, it says this, and I'm reading from the New King James. Matthew 6, uh, 9 through 13. Okay, Matthew, Matthew 6, and it's actually Matthew 6, 12. In the midst of the Lord's Prayer, it says this, And forgive us our debts, or sins, or transgressions, as we forgive our debtors. And this is Jesus instructing us very specifically how we are to pray and conduct ourselves. Now, certain traditions, I just, I read um, earlier this year, I read a book called Amish Grace. Now, the Amish take a very hard line position as Christians on this issue, and they, they truly believe that God's forgiveness for their sins is interrupted or sidetracked if they in turn don't forgive. And this particular book was about a massacre that occurred in an Amish schoolhouse and what, how the Amish responded in forgiveness to the man's family and, and what they did. But part of what the book was about was their absolute belief, taking this scripture really from a hardcore perspective, that God's forgiveness was ultimately not available to them if they didn't in turn reciprocate to others. Okay? Now that's a hardline position. But it is very clear from the scripture that we are called because we are forgiven, we are called to forgive others. Now there's other places that we could go. There are, there are several other parables that we can look at where, uh, you know, there's, there's the one where the, the 
uh, the master. How far did you go? You went to verse 12? Yeah, because you need to go down to verse 14. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For if you forgive men their trespasses, transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay? Yeah. Now, there are issues of timing. Okay? I mean, there, there's allowance for that. And, and by talking about the Amish example, they don't account for the timing. I mean, they take this thing literally one minute to the next literal because they might sin in the next day and, and have a sense that forgiveness is not available to them because there are unconfessed, there's unforgiven people or circumstances in their life, okay? Now, reality is for many of us, timing is an issue. We, we may not get to that point of forgiveness, but that we are called to clearly forgive in God's, in the same spirit in which we are forgiven is, is, is very scriptural. Right. Um, but it's the willingness to forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you get to chapter 7 in, in that same Sermon on the Mount. It says, whatever measure you use to judge people, that's the measure God is going to judge you with. So mm-hmm. if you want to like, hold a hard line on somebody, then, then you look at their actions. You're inviting probably some problems. But if you have the willingness to forgive, but you're working through the issue and you're doing it imperfectly, then God is still willing. Okay. Okay. So we have this forgiven David, and now David making this declaration about his and, and really our relationship to God in verse 7. One of the things to remember, and I, I put it in here because I thought it would be. Um, uh, yep, I missed again. You guys aren't standing on protocol, are you, if I miss a slide or two? Okay, here we go. I threw this in there because I, I wanted it, again, for you to see what we mean by this idea of forgiveness and the clean slate. This is from the, the book of Zechariah in the Older Testament, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And this is the vision. It's, it's important here to understand who this is. This is the vision of the high priest. Okay, one of the highest offices that you could have at that time within the Jewish faith. And this was, this was kind of like the top of the top, the high priest, the person who was, you know, holy, most closely represented what it meant to have a walk with God. And, and here's what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him or accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Isn't this guy a coal that I pulled out of the fire? That's what he's saying here. Talking about Joshua the high priest. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now what's significant about this is, absent this forgiveness we've been talking about and the clean slate, it doesn't matter how good we think we are. I'm sure that Joshua the high priest thought he was pretty good spiritually, pretty good shape. Okay? Yet, when, when Joshua the high priest comes before the holy 
spotless God, it turns out that he's wearing filthy rags. And he doesn't even know. Okay? He doesn't even know. And that's the same thing with us here. And I know I'm really hitting on this point about the meaning of the forgiveness, but I, you know, it's one of the most critical aspects of this psalm, is to understand in depth what it means to be forgiven like that. Because we're enslaved by our impressions of, a, of sort of a vengeful, punishing, never forgetting God. And it holds us back. It holds us back from living abundantly. So Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity. There's that word, remember, from the beginning of Psalm 32. I have removed your iniquity from you. In Psalm 32 it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Okay? No deception. This is all taken away now. And you know what? Joshua wasn't trying to deceive God by appearing in dirty clothes. He was deceived. He thought he was clean. He thought he, was, he had it together. And I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So this is just a great picture of what God does, because ultimately in what we bring, we, we just have those filthy garments. And God says, okay, you're forgiven. And if you're going to be in my presence, let me dress you up. Let me give you the party clothes so that, so that you will be clean and spotless before my eyes. And that is what Jesus bought for us, that right. Okay? So this, this, picture that. That's David. That's us. Now, you know, coming in, in verse 7, and that's why David can say this. Okay? He says what he says there. Now, any questions on that? Any, any comments or anything? Okay. Now, in verse 7, it's important to note how, um, how David addresses God. First thing he does is with thanksgiving. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I am thankful. I'm going to praise you because of what you've done. The second is acknowledging God's true nature and power. Now, I had said we were, going to look at, we were going to look at the Lord's Prayer, and if you look at the Lord's Prayer, what David was doing is actually very consistent. This is the opening. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Holy on high. Holy be your name. You are great. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's a statement basically saying you are the one. I realize I've been forgiven, David says, and I'm going to give praise to you and thanksgiving. I'm going to acknowledge now what I really know, not in my head, but in my heart, to be true. Your true nature. Your true nature. And in, in doing, just like we talked about this psalm, there's great wisdom in his praise of God. Okay, what is he saying here in verse 7? First he's saying, there's no true safe haven 
except that which is found in God. You, he says, are my hiding place. He doesn't say, you're one of my hiding places. You're, you, you might be this, or, you know, I like hanging around with you, God. He says, you are my hiding place. You are the one place. And the hiding place there signifies a place that is safe from all evil, all potential harm. You are my hiding place. So he acknowledges right away, and this is great wisdom, again, where is the only true safe haven for us? In God's presence. And as we talked about earlier in the psalm, what takes us out of God's presence? What makes us shy away from re-entering God's presence? Sins, transgressions, stuff that is unconfessed. Okay? What is David also saying? From here to eternity, God is our faithful keeper and protector. You shall preserve me from trouble. So, you know, you notice it isn't saying here, and there's no implication in the verse, that we won't have trouble or that we won't encounter tribulations and problems in our lives. It doesn't say that. And God doesn't promise us a perfect existence. What God does promise us and what David is reminding of here is that God is our keeper and protector. our keeper and protector. Well, there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians, we won't go there, but it, it talks about, uh, uh, what is that, Skip? 2 Corinthians 5? Maybe I will go there. Uh, crushed but not, uh, you know, but not crushed, what is that? Yeah, pressed but not, I'm pressed on all sides but not crushed. Uh, let me see here, I'll read it to you. This gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. Um, 4.8, thank you. So you got your computers faster than my eyes. Okay, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 4.8. 4, we are hard-pressed on every side. Okay, we got some problems. We're facing troubles, but not yet, yet not crushed. Crushed is ground into dust, failing, even ceasing to exist in our form. Okay, so we're not crushed, we're hard-pressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We may be wondering what's happening to us, but God says, you'll never despair if I am with you. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Okay. And uh, you, you, you heard Kirk Nowry, those of you who are here this weekend, talk about persecution in, uh, in Sudan. So there are people there that are being persecuted, but under no means has, by any means, has God forsaken them. Yeah. Struck down, that means knocked down, but not destroyed. And destroyed literally means to cease to exist. Okay, so we might even be struck down, knocked down to the ground, but not cease to exist. So that's the spirit in which David here is proclaiming that God is our keeper and protector. Okay. It doesn't mean we're not going to run into some problems. Don't mean we're going to not take some blows. Doesn't mean we're not going to encounter hardship. But God is faithful and ever present. He also says that God, he knows whatever happens, God will deliver him. Now, delivery, I mean, you know, what does that mean? Well, it looks different in a lot of different situations. That doesn't mean exactly take him out of a situation, it means show him a way out. 
but it may be a painful way out. There may be some suffering involved. One never knows. But that God will be his deliverer. And then finally, um, this is out of 2 Timothy, because this kind of encapsulates in the life of Paul exactly what David is talking about here, about God's complete provision, where Paul says this. This is, a, you see the quote there, 2 Timothy 4, 17, 18. And this is out of the NLT. It's a little easier version. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see there were plenty of certain death situations that Paul was involved in. Yes, the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Okay? Now, Paul was ultimately killed. So, on this earth, you might say, hey, what happened to God? You know, he was martyred. No, what does Paul say? Will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So he's talking about his, his you know, what we just said in Psalm 133, life everlasting. His spiritual life was safeguarded by God so that he could go be with him in, in heaven. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. So that's kind of an encapsulated, thinking about Paul's life, what this means in very, very practical terms. Same thing that David was, was essentially saying there in verse 7. Okay? Questions on that? Any, any uh, covering it? Nobody? Everybody awake? Okay. You're not in your heads. I'm watching you. Okay. All right, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I will guide you with my eye. Now here's what happens here. There's a shift. So in verse 7, what's happening? David, out of this place of forgiveness, having been restored, David is now in a place to speak to God directly, just like us. Okay? But what it stands for, as we've talked, we've almost beat it to death, is outside of that, the restoration of that relationship, we really are not in a position to talk to God directly like that. We're, our, a level of relationship with God is broken. So David's been restored. He talks directly to God. Now... We see the flip here in verse 8 and actually through the rest. In verse 8, God now is going to use the forgiven and restored David to talk to us. So verses 8 through the end of the psalm are actually God using this restored man to speak to his people and to speak to us today. Okay? So David's getting used on this. Now, the word you there, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, that actually means us. So God's instruction is, is meant for each one of us. Yes, communally too, like we're all here together tonight, but individually for each one of us. Okay? And it's available through, because God works through His church, and his leaders. So God appoints teachers and leaders and people who then deliver his instruction so that we might partake of it. 
but it is intended for everyone. But that is the role. You see that a lot of different places in the particular New Testament about the role of those who teach and, and, and lead others and the, the great responsibility that's involved. Okay? So only God, because it says then, the way you should go. And again, what this is telling us is only God can show us the true path. The true path means the way you should go. That means according to God's will. Now what's the flip side of that? Any other path is what? Wrong, lost, wayward, missing, incomplete. the way you should go that's what it means the way you should go and that only comes through God and thinking of the context of the way you should go no lone rangers out there how are you gonna really know the way you should go if you're disconnected from other people in God's family the way you think you should go, how do you, how do you test that? How do you test that outside of community? And so when people come to me and they say, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm spiritual, and, but you know, I, don't, I don't really belong to the church. My church is kind of a universal church and all the fellowship of people. And, you know, and I say, yeah, well, uh, how do you know? How do you know if you're, you're, you know, you're on the true path? Oh, I just know. Okay, all right. But this really telling us in all of that we've been talking about that really community and being in relationship with others is the way that we know how we should go. And it also brings out the importance, and we'll talk about this here in a minute. Um, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I will guide you with my eye. Now if you think about that for a minute, that's kind of an interesting analogy, isn't it? I happen to be, well, I was talking with somebody the other day, and uh, uh, again, because uh, one of the things with me is, uh, I don't know, was I telling you this, Marty? I think I was, actually. I think I was telling you this on Monday. When my dad drank, he was, he was very violent. You know, he was a totally, you know, great guy when he didn't drink, but when he drank, something about alcohol sort of unleashed this sort of violent attitude in him and I was his eldest son so I was always the target or very frequently the target of this violent outburst and so when I was very very young I developed sort of this really uncanny ability to to watch body language and to look at people's eyes and you know so you know if you think I'm doing that here and you think I'm watching you or something it's just that it's just a very natural thing for me is that I, I really am a people watcher and I can I pick up on stuff just by watching people and a lot of people I'll, I'll be in church like as a for instance and I'll walk up to somebody and I'll say hey you know you, you just you know I've seen something in you are you okay today or are you all right and somebody say wow you know you know thank you for asking actually you know you want to pray for me or I appreciate you 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 know watching out so um, all that to say the eye can be very powerful and the idea that we would be guided not by hearing something but by by an eye you know 
that, that is something very intimate, very direct. Okay? So God is promising to, to guide us. Now here, in realistic terms though, we don't actually see God's eye. Here the eye is really meant to mean um, those, those whom God has appointed to lead us again. Okay, they are, they are God's eyes. Yes? Exactly. Yeah, we are speaking figuratively at this point about the eye, okay? I mean, yeah, talking in terms of, of just organizationally, yes, we, there are appointed leaders, but again, within the idea of community, there are other eyes, if you will, upon and out in the world and life and stuff that can, that can bring things to us that we might not otherwise see or perceive. So that's, that's, the, um, that's the point there. But yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I didn't give her, ask her to make that comment because that's exactly the point that we were going to talk about. Part of the Lectio Divina that we did is a stopping, a centering on one thing, in this case just hearing. Just shut down to only your hearing and see what comes through hearing, okay? What came through that. And the same way, the discipline of looking into one's eye, being led by the eye, requires concentration, it requires focus, requires shutting out distractions, okay? And these are, these are why we have things like spiritual disciplines or certain kinds of spiritual practices that have lasted for millennia. Why? Because there's always been a recognition that life tugs at us. It's really easy to get distracted. I'm distracted. The Olympics are on. You know, I have TiVo. I get up early. I get up at 5 in the morning, so I have, you know, all this time and nobody's awake. <laughs> I'm distracted. I know it. I know it. I acknowledge it for, you know, 17 days. Is that how long they are? How many people knew the Olympics are actually 17 days, right? But that, you know, we get distracted. It's really easy, okay? 
And I know why, because I, I love to write and I haven't written at all during the Olympics. <laughs> you know, because that's usually what I'll spend time a lot of times in the morning doing. And, and I haven't because I've been sidetracked. Okay. I'm learning many lessons though. Uh, okay. The flip side of that though is for those who lead and those who step out to guide others, there's a tremendous responsibility before God. And I can't tell you, and I'm sure that the brothers in the back there can relate their own circumstances, but how often in church leadership at different levels I've had people chomping at the bit, oh, I, you know, I want to lead this, or I want to do that, I want to direct that, and you know, a lot of times you have to stop and say, you know, this, this isn't about the skills you have. Are, are you prepared for the spiritual responsibility of God entrusting some people to you? That's, that's a big responsibility. And guess what? If, um, if those who lead, those who guide, are not in turn guided by God's eye, what's going to happen to the people that are following them? All over the place, right? So sometimes we think, gee, you know, it's pretty restrictive. This, you know, you have to do this, you have to be around, or, you know, how come you just can't jump in there? Well, there's a reason for that. There's a certain spiritual discernment that takes place to determine who really can be entrusted with these souls on a very real, in a very real sense. Okay? So that's what we're talking about here with the eye. But it, that is available to all of us. Other comments or questions there on, on uh, verse 8? Everybody understand that? The concept there? Okay. A lot of times we, and in fact, somebody asked me this, one of, one of the... Uh, one of the small group leaders that we oversee had asked me, you know, we ended up having this discussion in, in a study that we were having, and the concept of spiritual warfare came up. You know, do you have any kind of resource material that I can look at that we can sort of examine this as a group? And I went out there, and it was really interesting. Most of the material it looks at spiritual warfare like, you know, somebody needs an exorcism or they're demon-possessed and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But the other kind of spiritual warfare the things that happen when we try and we put ourselves in a position to draw people near to God, to guide them with our eye, of course, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, right? And that, that's the principle. And we need to always remember that. Anytime we're, we're in a role, even if we're a small group leader, to remember that things, you know, there are forces at work there that want to derail us. Yes? Mm -hmm. There are many other verses that say, you will have his hand on your shoulder. He, uh, my sheep know my voice. So mm -hmm. he uses every means to lead us, not just his eye. You know what I mean? Right. Like, there are so many different ways that he communicates with us. And if we're really receptive, we see, we hear, we feel, we sense him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And I just had an email exchange today with somebody one of one of my group leaders and we were talking about just you know some some things that had come up there kind of an undercurrent of word passing around and one of the one of the points I said is what are the voices that 
that our people are listening to. You know, and that could even be the voice of other people that maybe really, really aren't in tune with what's going on or they may be contrary voices and, and that's exactly right. It isn't, we're, we're just talking about I right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take uh, about a 10 minute break and then we'll come back and, and finish up. There's uh, coffee, hot water, and uh, cups for water in the dispenser over there, however inhospitable that might seem. Yeah, yeah, uh,